Escaped Sapiens. One of the most interesting features of human intelligence is that it comes with personality. We aren't all the same and our thoughts aren't purely logical. They're instead sculpted by our level of hunger, how tired we are, the presence of mind-altering drugs in our systems, our sexuality, stress, and any number of internal and external factors. So how did humans end up with our peculiar psychology? And what sort of control does our evolutionary past have over the thoughts we're able to have and the behaviors we're able to express as individuals? In this episode of the podcast, I speak with evolutionary psychologist Diana Fleischman to find out. In this conversation, Diana unmasks some of the more wild and curious features of our evolved psychology. This is a conversation that ranges from human sexuality and fetishes, to cannibalism, to the Me Too movement, to disgust sensitivity, to sex differences in behavior and cognition, to the impact that modern technology has on our societal beliefs and values. I hope you enjoy. What is evolutionary psychology to start with? Uh, evolutionary psychology is a lens through which we view human behavior and human nature. So the basic idea is that human beings evolved like all non-human animals and our behavior evolved for adaptively relevant reasons. And obviously within the constraints that are available to us, both physiologically and behaviorally. So there are things that we could not learn to do as humans, and there are things, uh, certain other constraints that are involved. But yes, thinking about the costs and benefits, adaptive benefits of various different aspects of psychology, and thinking about human being psychology as either adaptations or byproducts or or noise. So trying to figure out why certain uh, psychological phenomena exist, and trying to also figure out if there are behavioral adaptations. How do you, it sounds like, you know, evolution occurred over billions of years. So how do you pinpoint uh, a moment in time in, in which certain characteristics or behaviors developed? I mean, so usually when you're dealing with evolution, you have, an, a, you know, a fossil record or something along those lines. So is there an analog uh, in your field? So, you know, um, you know psychological <laughs> uh, fossils. It, it, what, is, what, do you, what do you do to test your uh, hypotheses? There's a few different aspects of it. There's a really good paper David Buss wrote with some of my colleagues, uh, which is called how to, you know, how to test evolutionary psychology hypotheses. Uh, but I'll tell you that there's a few different aspects to your question. So the first is that Lita Cosmides and John Tooby and some other of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology came up with this idea called the environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. And the idea there is that human beings uh, have arrived but our ancestors lived in a variety of different environments and with a variety of different like physiologies, right? So ostensibly human beings in part evolved, you know, on the African savanna, uh, but there's a lot of consistent aspects of our evolutionary history that you can infer without knowing a, a, a ton in terms of like fossil evidence. So we know that human beings have two sexes that, and that women lactate and that uh, we were sensitive to parasites and pathogens. We know that, um, we had kin and we had uh, ways of conceptualizing who was our kin and who was not our kin, because we see that, for example, in hunter-gatherers. We know that um, people were vulnerable when they were injured uh, and that without help, they could have died. We know that we lived in an environment with light where there were, uh, you know, there was day and night. So these are all things that seem trivial to talk about, but they're all the building blocks of how you would expect, you know, human nature to evolve. And another aspect is that, you know, we know because of 
not even closely related species, but for example, like mammals, um, pretty much all mammals have um, some degree of looking after their offspring. They all have, for example, parental adaptations. And so one way of considering, you know, what is in the human repertoire of you know, psychology, evolved psychology, is to look at uh, closely related non-human animals and or non-human animals that share a certain ecology or social ecology with us as well. The other aspect is, you know, if behavior isn't fossilized, how do we know what exists? Well, there's there's a variety of ways to, to look at that. So this is one reason why evolutionary psychologists are somewhat more likely to look at cross-cultural research than uh, more typical cognitive or social psychologists is because one way that we can figure out if a one one piece of evidence that there is an evolved human nature in some respect is if we see it uh, universally. So there is uh, you know no culture in which uh, women have gotten together in a group or a band with weapons to go and kill women of another group and kidnap their men. That's never happened. It's never happened that women have waged war on other women. Uh, I mean, unless you um, think about the mythological Amazons, that's one reason that they captured the imagination so much is because it was so contrary to uh, what's received as human nature. So there's you know certain, certain things that we know have never happened and there's things that we know have happened over and over again. And you know David Buss who did, I think it was 1989 study of something like 33 cultures. He thought, for example, that there was an adaptive preference that men had to be with women who had very little sexual experience before because a woman's previous sexual experience to um, a relationship with you is indicative of her degree of fidelity. And that gets to paternity certainty, paternity uncertainty. Basically men want offspring they know to be theirs. And if you, um, you know, marry somebody slutty, uh, then, you know, and I use the word slutty in the nicest way possible. I myself think being slutty is fine. But, uh, but basically, if you marry somebody slutty, they're very likely to um, commit infidelity or more likely to commit infidelity. So he thought that men might have a preference for women who have very few sexual partners all over the world. And that just wasn't the case. In, in China, for example, this was in the late 80s. I don't really think things have changed very much. Um, we see that men and women actually have a pretty strong preference for a partner who has very little sexual experience. But in places like Scandinavia, marrying a virgin is considered uh, not just not desirable, but actually pretty weird. So he, you know, he was thought that there was going to be some universality. Uh, Dan Fessler uh, was interested in how much people, men prefer women who have smaller feet because smaller feet is an indicator of nulliparity, which means like you haven't had kids before. And nulliparity is potentially adaptive because it means that you have, you know, more access to that particular woman's. Um, reproductive, lifetime reproductive potential. Um, he actually found some interesting stuff. I'll just tell you one little example. So almost everybody prefers somewhat smaller than average women's feet. When women have babies, their feet get bigger, whatever. Um, one interesting thing was that there was one culture, now I can't remember, it was a culture in um, I think Central Africa, where they uh, men preferred women with bigger feet. And what was going on there is that women have to work the homestead, work the farm, while men go out to work. So the idea that, that, that I think was postulated in a, a talk that I saw Dan Fessler give was that men preferred women with bigger feet because it indicated that they were stronger and bigger and better able to work the farm. Mm -hmm. So even in those cases, you know, you might have an adaptive evolved preference uh, for some signals of nulliparity like small feet, but you'll see a cultural difference in this, uh, in that 
okay, well, maybe somebody with bigger feet is actually going to be more relevant to me in my current circumstances. So um, I think that gets to kind of some of the, some of the major points. But uh, the, the last thing I'll say is that, uh, you know, evolutionary psychologists, we think about things um, top down and kind of uh, bottom up. So one thing is, you know, we can see some aspect of human behavior out in the world and we could say, okay, you know, is this adaptive and in what context would it be adaptive? So we have to make very specific predictions or we can have like kind of a top down, like, okay, what kind of thing would be adaptive? So what would be adaptive for men and women uh, to know about each other or what would be adaptive for women to do, for example, in the context of child rearing, um, is there an adaptation uh, for that? So for example, um, a lot of non-human animals show lactational aggression. It makes sense if you have a very vulnerable new newborn that you would be very vigilant against uh, predators or, you know, anyone else who, who might want to hurt them. And um, this, uh, I think her name is Jennifer Han Holbrook. She did a really cool study with bottle feeding mothers and with uh, uh, breastfeeding mothers and found that breastfeeding mothers more more aggressive in a, in a laboratory context against somebody who annoyed them. Um, I think the aggressive paradigm she used was like she blocked that the, these women were blasting people with white noise. So that's like a, a you know it's very hard to measure aggression actually in the lab, but this is something that you would expect from an adaptationist perspective. That, for example, women be aggressive when they're breastfeeding against potential interlopers and against potential threats. Did the women in that study know they were going to be annoyed? Did they, did they know that was? I actually don't remember exactly how she annoyed them, but it was pretty cool, you know, kind of outcome. And, you know, there's a lot of other kind of very specific predictions you could make about that. Um, you know, there's interesting studies of like reaction time. So if I show you an array of images, uh, let's say I show you a, a large visual array of mushrooms or flowers and there's one spider, you're going to be better at picking out that spider. Uh, or if I show you an array of smiling faces with one angry face, you'll be better at picking out that one angry face. And there's stuff where you can look at, you know, um, somebody's particular state. Uh, Dan just did amazing studies on this stuff, you know, so Dan was interested in formidability. And um, so Dan Fessler was interested in, in formidability, how uh, men estimate each other's formidability, because men fight and, and men in every culture fight. And, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious if you think about it. Um, and he did a really cool study where <laughs> he, uh, he tied male participants to a chair and then had them rate how formidable someone was a picture of somebody and men who were tied to a chair <laughs> thought somebody was like more formidable um, and studies that both Dan and I have done which you know indicate some evolved psychology is um, you know nowadays we don't really think much about ectoparasites so like things like fleas and ticks but those things are very important and uh, they're very adaptive for non-human animals and so uh, you know, I found evidence that people's skin sensitivity increases when they see uh, maggots or, or fleas or ticks, um, which is a very specific prediction, and there's not really any other way to explain it. Have you heard of the Trobriarian Islands at all? No, the Trobriarian. You mean yeah. Trobriard Islands? Probri yeah. I, well, I don't know how it's pronounced. I've only ever read it. But this, this, uh, is a, yeah. this is a group where the women are sterilized by the yams they eat, right? And they're... they're idea of how women conceive is completely separate from sex. Have you, have you looked at... Yeah, there are some cultures in which uh, it seems like they don't know that sex makes babies, like, consciously. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that makes entirely... I mean, uh, the, the conscious awareness of anything, uh, you know, 
one common misconception I see is, you know, I, I give an evolutionary psychology explanation and somebody will say, well, I don't want to have kids. I'm not interested in children. Mm. I'm like, yeah, but there's an unbroken line from like your mother to like the first amoeba of sexual reproduction. Like that had some influence on you. Your current attitude is going to be less influential in many ways than, than that unbroken line. And so, yeah, um, I think David Buss was very skeptical of that claim that anybody doesn't know that sex causes reproduction, but it makes, I think it's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Well, the reason why I bring it up, up so if I could, I can only find one article really on uh, these islands. And apparently this is a culture where the women do chase down and rape men uh, under certain circumstances. Mm. Uh, so I was wondering if you knew anything, else, if, but if, you, if this isn't in your background, <laughs> we don't no, have to No, I have no idea about that. There's, there, there are, yeah, so like in um, central Amazon, there are these pink Amazonian river dolphins called Brota Cordovasa. And uh, the common conception in the tribe is that there are women that nobody wants and these women conceive with the dolphins, right? The dolphins, they take human form, I don't know, in special magical ways, and then these women conceive. So like my, my credulity about stories that make, people make up about like reproduction or like people make up about women who are like too ugly to have sex with, obviously they're not. <laughs> so. No, well, it wasn't based. So the article that I read, and again, I, I shouldn't be talking about an article I read many years ago. And, but in any case, the article that I read uh, mentioned that uh, in the society, when men wandered outside of regions where they were allowed to be, uh, they were essentially free game from women from other tribes. And uh, so they were essentially women would take advantage of uh, men they found outside of the appropriate territories. But, that would um, make sense if the uh so there is a group no, i can't remember i don't know if it's the Ache, there's a group of of um, central or south american peoples where it's the maternal uncle that does almost all the paternal care and like the actual men who make babies with women um you know women don't have like like consistent pair bonds so it's the maternal uncle who knows that he's at least a quarter related to these kids that he invests in them so i guess it would make sense for you know if if you're just entirely looking for genetic material and uh you're not at all looking for um, investment, then I guess you would just want to pick out the um, the most robust person that you could you could find, you know. Uh, and and there's tons of other species that do this. But yeah, again, we're we're both talking about something we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back onto something we do know something about. Yeah. You know, I, I I don't know about you, but I like to think of myself as a rational person who uses logic and who you know, my brain works like a computer in my own conception, but it's absolutely not true, right? Like I get hungry, I get annoyed, I, you know, maybe an attractive girl walks by, different things influence the way that I think. And uh, so in what way does the fact that we li we have physical bodies and, and we exist in these groups influence the way, well, the things, the thoughts that we're able to have? Do, do, does our physical body influence the capacity that we have for thought? Um, yeah, I mean, I absolutely think that they, they do. One, one example that I liked, so what I'm writing about currently is about relationships between men and women and about, a lot of that is about adaptive self-deception. So I might think that I'm angry about one thing, but really I'm angry about another thing that I don't want to admit. So in order to punish somebody for a behavior that I don't like, 
I make up a story about something else. For example, um, you know, my my husband says he doesn't like something I cooked for dinner. That makes me feel like he's not adequately committed to me. That he could be stolen by someone else who he likes their cooking better. But that's obviously a ridiculous reason to get angry. So I act like I'm angry about something completely different. You know, that he I don't know turned up the stereo too loud or something. And um, and so that that facilitates my punishment of a behavior that I dislike. And I might not even know why. Uh, so I talk a lot in this book that, I, that I'm writing about how we punish people in ways that we are not always um, consciously aware of. But one of my favorite studies about this particular phenomenon is a study that showed that basically the best predictor of whether or not couples will argue is the low blood sugar of the couple. So hangry couples uh, tend to argue more. So the, the lower your blood sugar, the more likely you would argue. And they also did a really funny aspect of this particular study where they gave each of the couple like a sort of an effigy, like a little stuffed doll that was representative of the other person in the couple. And then they saw how many pins they stuck in the doll as a function <laughs> of, you know, as I said, it's difficult to measure aggression. So you gotta, you gotta, you know, make little, little voodoo effigies and stuff. And so, yeah, they found that people were more likely to argue and also more uh, symbolically aggressive when they were hungrier. Now, how does that make any sense? I think that what happens is that when we are hungry or when we're in pain, regardless of who's around, we tend to punish whoever is, is close by. So if I lose my keys and there's just somebody who's, you know, witlessly happens to be around, in some sense, I, you know, my anger is going to like land on them, even though they had nothing to do with me uh, necessarily losing my keys. Um, there's a study where they have, you know, two rats in a cage and one of them uh, gets shocked and the other one is kind of up um, on a chair kind of tied to like a little rat chair and the rat who gets shocked attacks the other rat just in case he was the one who you know turned on the electric grid so I think that we're very prone uh, to punish people around us because you know in terms of our evolved psychology you could never be sure that the person who's closest by is not the person who hid your keys or I can never be sure that like um the reason I'm hungry is because I wasn't adequately provisioned by someone who was supposed to feed me or who was supposed to take care of me, right? Um, and toddlers and other, other, I mean, we're, you know, in my view and what I'm writing about now, we're constantly rewarding and punishing people. And oftentimes um, we're doing so in ways that don't actually uh, change their behavior in ways that are, that are adaptive to us. But on average, you know, punishing and rewarding the people around us. Um, you know, you see this with children all the time. They freak out when they're hungry. They act incredibly sweet and adorable when they're being well-fed. Mm. And, uh, you know, they're rewarding you for, for giving them food, uh, especially sugar. <laughs> so is the, is the type of intelligence that, you know, the high intelligence that humans have in some sense unique? By which I mean, you know, if we had, if you took some species that was very different to us, say a bird or an octopus or something like this, and you uh, gave it selective pressure over many generations to make them super intelligent, say, would, would we end up with something that's very similar to what we have as a human? Or, you know, it, it would, would, you know, in other words, do the constraints you need to impose in order to get intelligence sort of lead to the sort of intelligence that humans have? Um, or would we expect very different sorts of uh, intelligences from you would expect very different sorts of intelligences, but you know you also have to think about the constraints that you're dealing with. Uh, I have a friend called Therese Laurie, and she wrote a guest blog uh, on Put a Numb on it about um, octopi. And something that's very interesting about octopi 
or octopuses, she said octopi is actually wrong, is that the females, uh, they actually don't engage in a whole lot of, uh, of care of offspring, or they do for a little while, then they, and then they either go off or they kill themselves. Like in captivity, they will sometimes kill themselves um, right after they have offspring, when they actually could live a really uh, long time. So why don't they engage in more care of the offspring? Um, in emperor penguins, you know, there's the, the story of, um, um, what was that famous movie, Trek of the Penguins, Journey of the Penguins? <laughs> what was it called? <laughs> anyway, it was about these penguins in Antarctica. And uh, you see them, you know, just holding these eggs on their feet and transferring the eggs over to each other and trying to keep their eggs warm and you know, engaging in this incredibly costly paternal and maternal care you know, this this movie was very widely lauded because the, the penguins were showing like really perfect like human marriage. You know, they were just so, so invested in their offspring. Um, and then in the summertime, the penguins, the baby penguins, they get in the sea and their parents completely forget which penguin baby is theirs. They go in the sea and like half of them get eaten. Right. Hmm. So like there's just this arbitrary cutoff of where paternal maternal care like end. And so there's just a lot of mysteries about what's going to happen that's adaptively relevant and what kind of constraints you know what's the constraints at that point that are um, making the penguins not care for their offspring and you know what are the constraints uh, that you know a variety of species have you know what are the constraints that make octopi not or octopuses not really uh, care for their offspring um, f after they hatch so you know, we, we don't necessarily know. We don't know what would happen if there's, I can't remember who this guy's, I think it's uh, George Dvorsky, but don't quote me on that, who um, I won't. had this uh, amazing like transhumanist thought experiment. Like what if we could amplify the intelligence of like birds and whales and fish and, you know, we could do some kind of weird flowers for Algernon thing with the whales and they could actually like directly communicate with us. They could figure it out and we could have this, you know, this line of communication. Um, and it's a beautiful thought experiment, but you also have to imagine that it'd be very difficult to communicate and they would have a variety of, of thoughts and feelings that would be, uh, uncommunicable to, to us. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one way that you could ask the question is, I mean, you, you could, you know, you could ask, is there sexual dimorphism in human psychology? Um, mm -hmm. and you know, if, if women and men have roughly the same intelligence, then, you know, is this a good example, uh, where you can look at intelligence that's been evolved under different selective pressure. I mean, that would be one way to um, pull out some sort of uh, understanding of where this question lies, right? Yeah, you definitely do see that, yeah, in men and women, that their intelligence evolved under different, you know, selection pressure. And there are things that men and women find, um, you know, much, much easier to do uh, than, than each other. Um, you know, even though my, my psychology is somewhat masculinized, uh, I do have a lot of like the normal feminine um, cognitive qualities. You know, I can remember people and names very, very easily, and I can notice hundreds of details about people and infer lots about them when, when I meet them. Uh, you know, whereas a lot of men I know and my husband in particular are terrible at that. <laughs> what are the main differences psychologically between men and women that you can find? Um, so the the kind of neat and tidy way that people often talk about it is they talk about men being systematizers and women being uh, mentalizers or empathizers. So women being better at um, inferring, uh, for example, mental states 
uh, and better at theory of mind. That is better at you know figuring out what people want and uh, reading their facial expressions. Although the facial expression stuff has been walked back somewhat, it does seem that women are better at recognizing facial expressions than men. Um, but their superiority might not be as great as we uh, once thought. And uh, men are better at, at systematizing. That is, they tend to be better and have more interest in um, systems of things, uh, things like folk physics and how objects interact um, in space. That's, that's, that's folk physics. Um, but also, um, you know, if I'm just talking about cognitive styles, um, those are a couple of the major cognitive styles uh, that are different. If you look at some of the biggest cognitive differences between men and women, you'll get into something called spatial rotation. And what we see in non-human animals is that males have a larger um, territory range. They often have multiple females or they have their foraging or they're keeping a certain range of territory. And the territory is large enough that they can't navigate only on landmarks. So they tend to have um, a better spatial navigation ability. And um, human males are better at spatial navigation than um, human women are. And there's even evidence that this starts to emerge as early as like five months of age. Um, they did some really interesting studies with you know, showing infants rotated objects. If you flip to the mirror version of the image, uh, boy babies are more likely to look longer, which indicates that they're surprised that the image is flipped instead of rotated. And so that's, that's one way that they've tested that. Um, At I did what age whole, is that? What age is that test on? Five months old. Wow. And there's already a difference then? There's already a difference then. Although I will say, you know, so I, I did a seminar on, on sex differences and I will say that um, one flaw that I see in sex differences research is that people tend to infer that if something's not available to measure, you know, within the first couple years of life, that it's socialized rather than mm. that you know, it's evolved and like, you know, Female babies are not born with breasts, but their breasts were not socialized on. They grew as a function of their genetic programming. So um, there are a lot of changes that happen at puberty, but there's also a lot of changes that you see at puberty between males and females of other species and, and like in monkeys and things, for example. In general, how do you, so I'm guessing you compare with other, anim, uh, other species to see, you know, is this uh, effect socialized or it's, uh, or it's biological? What are the other ways that you can actually tease this apart? I think, I think that the human universals thing is one, one way that we look at that. So, so different cultures. You know, yeah. Yeah. So if we see, um, there are very few cultures in which males care for children, even half as much as women uh, care for, for their children. Um, if you look at cultures around the world, yeah, women tend to invest a whole lot more in, in offspring. Um, you can also look at, yeah, non-human animals, although some people find that not especially compelling because either they they don't think that non-human animals are similar enough to humans. Um, I had a whole debate about free will uh, with this woman and, uh, and I was basically saying, you know, unless you think that animals also have free will, it doesn't make sense to talk about humans having free will. Um, and people thought that that was a a glib point that of course humans are, are qualitatively different from them from non-human animals and that, that that's obvious so that was one reason that i was really attracted to evolutionary psychology was because of this comparison mm -hmm. that was very readily available um with non-human animals and you know if you look at cultural you know the people the kinds of people who do cultural psychology or the kind of psych social psychologists who talk about things being culturally governed 
Um, it just seems like this, this black box um, where we don't exactly know how it works um, for, for everything from, you know, stereotypes to family arrangements to work ethic. You know, how, how is this stuff communicated? Um, there's a lot of stuff, for example, where people say that, I don't know, like East Asians or um, Jewish Americans do very well in terms of earnings and success because of the way that they are, are raised or the culture that they're brought up in. I mean, my view is that if that was the case, then, then Chinese and Jewish nannies would be in very high demand <laughs> um, because there'd be some hope that they would yep. rub some of their culture off. Um, but that's not the case. Or people aren't conceptualizing that, perhaps. One, one thing that I wonder about uh, when it comes to cultural universality, though, is, you know, it could be the case that cultures where women primarily look after the children are just, uh, they outcompete cultures where that is not the case, right? Um, it, how, how, do you, how do you account for that? Is, is, there, is there some some way that you can do that? or? Yeah, so there's these ideas about sort of group selection or cultures competing with one another. It's very, it's been a while since I've, since I've looked at this stuff. It does, it does make sense to me that if, if a variety of different groups are in competition with one another, that you could see some selection effects such that one group would necessarily win out. I don't necessarily think that a culture in which women take care of offspring is necessarily going to be more successful. I think it probably has more to do um, you know, with, with ecology. And another thing that you see oftentimes is, um, you know, a culture where, where people were encouraged to get, you know, have, have children would probably outcompete one in which they were not as well. And that's, that's also not something you necessarily, um, see. So yeah, that's, that, that would be something you could have somebody on to talk about, but I'm not super well-versed in the group selection debate. Um, but it still goes on. Um, and it's been going on since the late, maybe even the early eighties. I guess in some sense, it probably doesn't matter, right? Because I imagine that if you had a, so say, for example, you had um, some socially imposed uh, constraint, you know, through some social mechanism, it's the women who are doing primary uh, childcare, say. Over mm -hmm. enough generations, that would actually enforce some sort of selection pressure, right? So you'd have some sort of, I imagine you'd have a back reaction. Um which would end up in some biological difference. Is that not the case or? Well, so, you know, somebody has to take care of offspring and um, I'll, I'll give you a, an interesting non-human animal example. So in fish, the females lay the eggs and then the males usually cover those eggs in sperm. Who is going to be more easily abandoning those eggs? It's actually the female that can more easily abandon those eggs because they can lay their eggs and they can leave. And then by the time the male is finished inseminating the eggs, the female's already gone. Mm -hmm. And that's actually why you see so much paternal investment in fish is because it happened so often that females abandoned and males were left kind of holding the bag. So it's kind of the, it's kind of a game theory, like first mover, you know, whoever can abandon first uh, will. And you see the most extreme outcome of that particular trajectory in seahorses where the females actually uh, inject or overposit their eggs into the male's uh, brooding pouch and the males are pregnant instead of the females. Mm -hmm. That's like the, that's the kind of extension of that trajectory. And so in, in humans, um, 
it's just much easier for, for males to abandon because uh, by the time the, you know, the insemination is finished, the female's got to still do like nine, nine months of, of gestating and two years of breastfeeding or three years of breastfeeding. If you're looking at um, most hunter-gatherer women um, breastfeed for much, much longer um, than women in industrial uh, cultures. And um, so, so yeah, it's much, much easier for, for males to abandon um, their offspring. And I have a blog and I also talk about this in the book. If you were to say, you know, for men, the, the lowest possible investment they can make in offspring is 10 minutes of time. And for women, the lowest possible investment they can make in offspring is nine months plus three years. Um, that would be like saying that for a woman to buy a baby, it costs $32,000. And for a man to buy a baby, it costs $1. And so obviously, in terms of, of what's adaptive for the man, it makes more sense for him to buy another baby for another dollar rather than like put a lot of money into the baby that he has. So uh, with one particular woman, so men have, you know, basically males have a lot of different potential um, strategies. And if a woman is not going to look after her offspring very intensely, she's either got to make offspring that are like better able at fending for themselves, or she's got to convince somebody else to help her out. So, you know, if you have a, if you, if you lived in a group where grandparents lived for a really long time and they were really invested in offspring, then yeah, you would need less paternal care. Or if you lived in a group where um, women were really good at training men to take better care of their offspring, or women really policed um, one, one man per woman, you know, women would never be co-wives, for example, then it doesn't make a lot of sense for a man to try to seek out uh, another mate, for example. Are women in general better at uh, sort of manipulation and training in, in this regard? Or is there some sort of sexual... Um training that women do of men in the, uh, in terms of looking after their children? Or? That's the thesis of, of basically my book is that uh, the basic idea is that for men, they have a major way of convincing other people to do what they want. And that's through physical force or the threat of physical force. That's through basic formidability. And you see this in all kinds of animals. Um, and in men, their status hierarchy is much more stable than, than women's status hierarchy because a lot of the status hierarchy comes down to who's the biggest and who's the strongest and who's the youngest, or you know who's got the most experience. This is prestige and status and formidability. These things all have an interplay with each other, um, but it's, it's relatively stable. Um, so because women don't have recourse to these two techniques other than with small children or women smaller than themselves, um, they have to use more sophisticated methods to try to get other people to do what they want. And uh, given that men can be either a tremendous boon to women or a tremendous danger to women, you know, one of the main ways that babies and young children are killed uh, around the world is by stepfathers or by unrelated males. Mm. Um, and you see this also in like a lot of non-human animals, uh, men killing babies because they want all of the woman's reproductive resources devoted to their child. And if you have a, a, a one-year-old, if you kill that one-year-old, a woman's going to ovulate again, and she's going to be able to get pregnant with your baby again. You see this in lions, you see this in baboons, etc. So um, women have to use sophisticated tactics to try and um, help men to provision them, to take care of their offspring and to not hurt them or their offspring, which men are want to do. So okay. it's actually, you know, because they're, they're trying to control... Um, 
other humans who are much bigger and stronger than them that women develop these abilities, but also because women have to train their offspring to not do dangerous things and to do socially acceptable things and to live in the culture in which they are living. So women have a lot of training to do uh, compared to men. It's strange though, right? Because uh, men are interacting directly with women. Uh, mm -hmm. So you'd imagine that they would also pick up the, and also men carry a, a lot of genetic material that women also carry. So it's, mm -hmm. it, why, why is it that the benefit is only sort of, uh, why is it that women benefit primarily from this if, if both members of the species are interacting with each other and both, uh, you know, it, does it sit on just the X chromosome? Well, men, men have that as well. Why, why is it that? Uh, well, sex differentiated you know, is complicated. There's a um, SRY gene. Yeah, so there, there are genes on the sex chromosomes that turn on and off other genes, right? Um, you could just as easily say, you know, why don't women have chest hair or testicles? <laughs> <laughs> right. right? Um, you know, there's there's this uh, these things that get turned on and off. And, and when you see some disorders of intersex, for example, um, androgen insensitivity syndrome, that's where the uh, there are no receptors for testosterone whatsoever. And so the default sex is female. And these people, um, they grow up to uh, look and act just like um, other biological women. And in fact, they are often like models and, and actresses and stuff because they have the bone structure of men. They're very tall and they don't grow very much body hair because they don't have any testosterone receptors. Um, so they often end up being like hyper feminine looking, even though they're XY and even though they actually have in their abdomens um, vestigial testes. Um, so, huh. you know, for these for these kinds of, of people, I think you would also see a very, very typical um, feminine uh, psychology because I imagine that lots of these things get turned on and off by, you know, early hormone exposure or by, um, you know, other genes. So I, I can't tell you exactly why you would see um, this difference, but, you know, you do see differences in nurturing behavior and ruffle tumble play uh, between the sexes and all these different species. Um, and it's almost certainly, you know, moderated, um, uh, genetically It's just, uh, we might not know exactly how, you know, what the cluster of genes is or what the regulatory system is that's, that's turning on and off these behaviors or propensities. Can we see this, uh, in brain in imaging? Like, do we, are we able to, you know, if I gave you a, a selection of female brains and a selection of male brains, uh, you know, would you be able to distinguish them at a physical level with what technology we have today? Um, I don't, I used to know more about this, but it, this area has moved very, very quickly. Um, there's a woman called Gina Ripon, there's Cordelia Fine, and there's um, another woman who have all written various different pieces saying, there is no one characteristic that distinguishes male and female brains. Yes, that is potentially true. Um, there's there's a there's a close call, but using uh, an algorithm and a computational, you know, like using brain imaging and a computational algorithm, I think that you can tell a man and a woman's brain apart. I want to say, ninety four percent of the time, ninety six percent of the time. That's one piece. Another thing is that um, I think that the the whole brain debate, like, can we tell men and women's brains apart, is pretty specious because. Um, you know, if you showed me a picture of my grandmother's brain 
and uh, the, the serial killer Ted Bundy's brain, I probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. You know, one is a 94-year-old German woman, um, and the other one uh, murdered, uh, I don't know how many women <laughs> in yeah, the yeah. sorority house, right? So, like, I just think that, like, you know, our ability to actually tell much about the psychology of a person based on their brain is not so so good. And it doesn't seem actually like it's it's like structural differences um, that make that that indicate very much. Um, so I think that the whole brain craze was motivated by this idea that like we could have like some objective thing like that's not self-report, you know, which psychology is riddled with that would enable us to better figure out these different phenomena um, and there's even you know a couple studies of gay men's brains versus straight men's brains uh, trying to find differences between them but i've never found these things either very compelling um, or very conclusive mm -hmm. i guess also <laughs> i could have asked the question you know if there were two of me, if i had a twin and you got one of me really drunk uh <laughs> such that my behavior was yeah. perturbed somewhat and then you killed us both and then did a then you had both brains to study. You probably couldn't tell the difference between the two brains, but then I'm behaving completely differently because I'm drunk. Yeah, right? that's right. Um, the, stru the, the structure wouldn't be different. Although that if one of you was an alcoholic for 20 years and the other one wasn't, then I would be able to tell the difference structurally. Yeah. No, no, we're both, both well behaved. But the, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but so I, then I guess uh, when it comes to um, people who are transgender or intersex, then also you probably wouldn't be able to do any scans that would, you know, there's, there's not necessarily visually a, a male brain or a female brain. It, it, it's uh... Yeah, there's there's some evidence that there's a difference. But the, another thing that you have to consider is that um, there, there might be different reasons that people become um, trans. So, for example, my, my guilty pleasure, one of my guilty pleasures is this show called um, My 600 Pound Life, which is like a very obese people and their struggles and travails and stuff like that. And in one episode, I remember seeing um, a man, a gay man, he said he put on a woman's dress, he put on like a kind of corset, he put on a bra, and there were like men chatting up him up all night. And like, he doesn't get that much attention as a fat man, but as a fat woman, he got tons of attention, right? And so you have to think that for many people, and this has been a very controversial issue, um, you know, I, I would direct people to uh, Galileo's middle finger has got like an interesting treatment of this, um, where there were a few different sex researchers who tried to taxonomize trans people. And also people who were saying, you know, um, the kind of man stuck in a woman's body, woman stuck in a man's body idea, uh, you know, might not be the whole picture, for example. Um, you know, people might transition for other reasons. These people uh, were really maligned. And so I do think that if we were going to come up with any kind of, you know, biological difference between, you know, trans people and cis people, you would almost certainly need some kind of, uh, of taxonomy. And I think that the trans community by and large, or, or maybe it's just the people who are the loudest um, in that community seem very much against being uh, categorized or taxonomized. And you, I mean, you see this in all kinds of areas of psychology. People are even upset about um, separating men and women as categories uh, or looking for, uh, for sex differences. Um, you know, there, there definitely could be differences in, uh, in ancestral populations in terms of their um, psychologies. 
um, you know, because we know that, you know, malarial resistance or Tay-Sachs or various other things um, are, are different among different populations. There could be psychological differences too, but I don't think that we're going to investigate them anytime soon because taxonomizing humans in any way is controversial. Yeah, I guess the question is, you know, why do you want to know this information? Because quite often we've used it. <laughs> humans are good at uh, seeking out differences and using that as a reason to treat each other not so nicely, I suppose. Um, and so it's always going to be controversial. Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I think is when this started, they made a database of faces. I think it was in China they did this. And uh, there was an algorithm that was able to detect at an above a chance level whether or not someone was criminally inclined. And they were calling this like new phrenology. And it's funny because people don't consider it's controversial. Like if I said that, um, you know, in total millennial speak, like I went to a party and I was talking to this guy and like he gave me such a weird vibe. And then I found that like he groped my friend's breast on a date with her. And like I knew because I had a weird vibe about him. <laughs> that tells you I had a weird vibe about somebody. And then they did something like, vaguely sexually inappropriate later you wouldn't question that at all so why wouldn't a computer be able to assess somebody's face or you know body movements or any other characteristic about them and figure out something quite similar like my intuition is just like an like a, an unconscious algorithm it's not special in any way there's nothing that can't be replicated computationally about it it's just like people just don't like the idea that there are phrenological or you know ph physiognomy People don't like the idea. Um, and so there's this guy called um, Gerolf Rieger in the UK who has a bunch of papers on gaydar. So I could show you, I want to say, a 10-second silent video, or GIF or GIF, I don't remember what it's called, <laughs> of, uh, of somebody's face while they're talking. And I think you could tell with like 84% accuracy if that person was gay or straight. I probably couldn't. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that's right. I forgot. I forgot. You're like you're like a like a mathy type person. Um, yeah. So that's that's. Uh, so I was at this this conference. This was a f several years ago. It was called Born This Way, and so Gerald Rieger was saying, um, men and women who are gay tend to show some psychological characteristics and manifestations of the opposite sex. So more masculine mannerisms. Um, you know, I think that they even did stuff where they like just um, conceptualize their face, you know, where you actually couldn't see their face. I think there's like point like display kind of thing. And people were able to tell above chance whether somebody was gay or straight on that basis. And there was a guy at that conference who said he was very against the idea of calling those characteristics masculine or feminine. Hmm. You know, he was, it offended him, the idea. <laughs> that gay men are more feminine. And I was like, well, as a woman, I'm offended that you're offended. Yeah, there's no reason why that's feminine. It's strange though, right? Because but, yeah. in ma many cases, people become uncomfortable when you talk about biological determinism. So for example, mm -hmm. when you talk about, I don't know, race or any of these controversial topics, but then when it comes to born this way, that's sort of like a biological determinism argument, right? So in that case, people are comfortable. If, you know, if, if there was no controversy around this topic and it was just a question of interest, to, to what extent are human sexualities malleable? I mean, how far can, you know, say for example, you're straight, how, how far can you push into the other direction 
uh, through so social influence, for instance? Um, okay. So there is some evidence that women are more sexually fluid than men are. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy here. Men are much sluttier than women. Right? <laughs> Men have like a much greater desire for like a larger number of lifetime sexual partners. They're much more likely to want to have sex with somebody very soon after meeting them without knowing very much about them. And they're much more likely to want to have short-term sex with somebody uh, regardless of their quality, right? Um, if you look at like long-term mating, men have much higher standards than short-term mating. If you look at short-term mating, uh, women's standards, you know, like you have, you know, who would you have a one night stand with, right? So that's interesting. Um, men are also much less sexually disgust sensitive than women, much more likely to watch porn, much more likely to get into like weird, you know, much more likely to have paraphilias. That is like foot fetishes, a variety of other kinds of things, right? Um, whereas women are much more likely to be bisexual and to be able to get into relationships of, um, with people of either um, sex. Um, so, you know, d d uh, Mike Bailey and um, Adam Saffron and some other people have looked at uh, bisexual versus straight psychology and also looking at like the Kinsey scale, which is a scale of sexual orientation. So like a, I think it's like a six or a seven is like super gay, a zero or one is like super straight, and then there's bisexual in between. And women's um, sexual spectrum, the population, looks much more like a spectrum than men's, which much more looks like a bimodal kind of distribution. So um, there is a colleague of mine called Sarah Radke, and I did some studies on this back like in 2015, basically saying um, there are adaptive reasons why you might expect women to try to make friends with sex in a way that men don't make friends with sex because the, the reproductive opportunity costs for women to make friends with sex are um, are lower. If a man is, is having sex with another man, that's an opportunity that he's losing, uh, not having sex with a woman. And you know he wants to be trying to reproduce because as I said, babies are really cheap for men mm -hmm. and they're very expensive for women. Um, whereas for women, they can form alliances with sex um, that uh, are important to help them take care of you know offspring together. And you see this with bonobos Bonobo females have sex with each other all the time. The males somewhat less often, and they do a lot of, um, you know, parental care, co-parental care. So the idea is that is sex, uh, there's an evolved pleasure system around sex, and then this has been leveraged to improve friend friendships and, and social alliances in various different ways. And so if you think about sex as like just the end of a spectrum. You know, there's affection, there's kind of grooming, there, you know, that's what all animals, you know, mammals do with one another um, socially. And then you get all the way to sexual pleasure. Um, there's a lot of ways to make people like you, as I say in the talk on this paper. Uh, you know, you can feed people, you could take them on new experiences, you can give them drugs, you can have sex with them. And these are all ways to um, make people closer together. And so if it makes sense if women need more help socially because they're, they have offspring, um, that they might want to do this. Although, you know, men also need help with each other. They, they need help going to war. They need help um, in terms of hunting. Um, but, it, you know, there are cultures in which men had sex to facilitate these kinds of affiliations, um, but it seems much more uh, varied from culture to culture than, than um, same-sex, you know, women are much more likely bisexual um, 
in, in other places. And in, in the study that I am talking about, which I think came out in 2015, I also talk about how, you know, 40 or 50 or 60% of cultures, there is some kind of socially approved same-sex sexual contact that people engage in. But for the most part, they're not gay. So like in Papua New Guinea, um, older men have sex with younger men, but they also have wives and they also get their wives pregnant. Mm -hmm. So uh, you could say that being exclusively gay or having exclusively same-sex attraction is actually quite unusual. Mm -hmm. But is that across the board in those cultures? As in, so my original question was, you know, if you had someone who uh, was gay or straight or however they identified, uh, the question was how malleable are we socially? So if you look at cultures uh, such as in Papua, I, I don't know, is it particular tribes or? Yeah, there's two different ones. And then it's across the board there, is it? that? Uh... It's just like, it's like, it's, it's, it's a maternal uncle. So like they're not related by blood and a nephew. And um, I can't remember the, 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 the two groups names now, but in, you know, the basic idea is that the more semen you swallow, the more masculine you become. Hmm. And it's kind of like a, like almost a cult kind of magical thinking thing. I think that, you know, if, <laughs> if we had a widespread idea that you had to eat semen in order to become more masculine, Men I think be awful. See, yeah, I think I think that you see like men men doing that too. I think it's just kind of the story. Um, so I think that actually engaging in some degree of same sex sexual contact is very malleable, but sexual orientation per se is not that malleable. And you, and, you know, this is um, uh, I can't remember what paper this was, but there's a I think it might be Muscarella this paper that's really good from the I think the 1990s that basically says you know when you were looking maybe it's because men were threatened by the idea that all men could be gay but when you were looking at some of the early papers on same-sex sexual contact among men they were like okay well we can discount prisons like that doesn't really count we can discount what 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 men do when they're young and when they're experimenting with each other or like whatever the the biscuit game they play in the UK where all the boys like apparently um ejaculate on a cookie and then whoever ejaculates last has to eat it i don't actually remember that I seems think, a little I think bit they call this soggy sayo or no, that's right yeah, yeah. so i mean i don't, i've never I, i'm not a boy <laughs> i never played these games um and so uh you know there's when when men were talking about or usually male sexologists were talking about same-sex sexual attraction um they were discounting like all these incredibly common forms of same-sex sexual contact um so remove all data points you don't want essentially exactly yeah and and they're like well that's not real gay behavior um and because women can't penetrate each other like a whole lot more gets counted as bisexual when women do it because it's uh you, you don't have to go all the way for it to be considered sex if you're a woman whereas if you're a man it seems like even oral sex doesn't always get counted right for men so uh long story short um it doesn't seem like sexual orientation is that malleable um, I have this very edgy friend who says that there's a, um, he said that there's a, uh, meta-analysis of gay conversion therapy and actually gay conversion therapy is more effective than you might think. Although I haven't brought myself to read it because I don't want to become one of these like incredibly unpopular people who is like, actually <laughs> you can clockwork orange someone who's not being gay anymore. It works. Right? I don't want, I don't want to do that. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if, yeah, like if you paired um, pictures of naked people of your preferred sex, you know, with pictures of uh, shit 
vomit and um, lynchings that ultimately you might lose attraction for those people. Although I don't think you would necessarily gain attraction for the other sex. Even if, uh, even if sexuality was 100% socially constructed, then that wouldn't be a reason why you should be prejudiced or hate on people of different sex. I mean, you know, if, if you're looking at things from uh, that direction, then it should be okay to ask these questions. Oh, yeah, no, no, I mean, I mean, the, the whole the whole reason that people are, yeah, people, people are don't like gay people because they're disgusted by sexual contact with the same sex, because um, any like unusual behavior is some signal of disease. And people have talked about this being disgust related, prejudice, having something, some disgust relationship. Um, I'm just really low when disgust sensitivity. So like, I've never really got it, but I can see how people would be, you know, um, disgusted by uh, people who have unusual phenotypes of, of various kinds. And that includes like behavioral phenotypes, phenotype as in the expression of, you know, all your characteristics, the expression of all your genetics, mm -hmm. your, your behavior and your, your physical features. When it comes to disgust, what comes first? Does it, <laughs> is it, um, do I develop? So think of, um, vegetarianism, for example, do I become a vegetarian because I'm disgusted to eat meat or do I decide to become a vegetarian and then I develop disgust sensitivity towards meat? You know, what, is there a cart before the horse? What's the, um, I think in terms of vegetarianism, I've done some research on this, but I think it can go both ways. So it's unclear. I think a lot of people become vegetarians because they're disgusted by meat. And you can see good evidence for this because they still eat fish and chicken, which is the less meaty forms of meat. So they're obviously not doing it like on a principled stance because they still eat animals. They just eat like less gross versions of those same things. Um, there's a old blog uh, that I really like, which is called Disgust Kills the Vegan Martyr, which basically says that vegans become very disgust sensitive at meat so that they no longer feel like they're missing out. Mm -hmm. And this is definitely a coping strategy that I've seen a lot of vegans engage in because, you know, like I'm not properly vegan anymore. I, um, I eat dairy. Uh, if something is going to waste, I will eat that generally, like whether it's red meat or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm pretty principled about not eating a few things, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't necessarily call myself um, uh, properly vegan anymore. Um, and I was really properly vegan for like eight or nine years, but, uh, you know, for me, if I said to somebody, look, you know, I was, uh, I was walking by a table and somebody had like completely left and this actually happened, had an untouched fish and chips out <laughs> at a pub in Oxford. I guess they got a phone call or something. They left. They never came back. I waited five minutes and then I ate it. Somebody's like, oh, you know, would you eat? If, if, if there was like, if there was like a homeless person, would you, would you eat a dead baby or would you eat a dead human being? I'm like, well, probably not. Cause like, I don't know how best to prepare them. Like, I don't know. Um, but I don't, you know, uh, what they were saying is that I should be as disgust, disgusted about eating a fish or a piece of chicken or a piece of beef or a piece of pork as I would be about eating like a human fetus or like a, a, a man's leg. Um, you know, and, uh, it's actually very funny. There's a cannibalism taboo in all kinds of different species. Even rats won't eat other dead rats. Um, and rats will eat basically anything. Um, and there's a, there's a few good reasons for that. But, yeah. 
I mean, disease transmission. It's probably not very popular when you eat someone else's son, right? For um, social yeah, I mean, bonds. So disease transmission. Yeah, disease transmission is the main one. So for rats, I don't know who did this incredibly perverse study, but I salute them. <laughs> I think with the rats, they did something where like there was a there were two different dead rats. One of them was like kind of gnawed on and was missing some of its skin, and the other one wasn't. And what I remember reading was that rats were more likely to eat a member of their same species that looked like it had been killed by a predator than looked like it had been killed by disease. So if there were cues that it had been killed by a predator, then it was probably safe to eat. Whereas if it was cues that it had been killed by disease, where like it still had all its fur on and it was kind of just like dead where it sat, then um, I think they were more wary of that. Yeah, because of disease transmission. But yeah, cannibalism in human societies is very common. Um, and there's there's a two there's survival cannibalism, but there's also um, magical cannibalism, uh, where you want to get you know somebody's qualities as your own. Yeah, I, I mean it's probably the case that in ninety nine percent of situations in which you come across a dead human body, you don't want to eat it, and so your disgust sensitivity just blankets <laughs> uh, every case that you you know it doesn't even bother with the one percent because yeah. it's not worth it right if i hadn't eaten in like a month i would definitely eat a person um but yeah you, you also have to think about like the kind of cost and benefit um there's a researcher called peter todd who did a really funny study so a, a couple years back uh, they actually did it online last year but it was in a, a few years ago they did it in person i was at a, a conference called the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting um, and so it was like, you know, zombie related talks, but like also you could take whatever you were working on and, and you know, make it zombie related. Zombified. So um, Peter Todd um, had this funny study he did with people where he asked them, when, when is the last time you ate? And then he had like a slider where you could slide between a picture of a walnut and a picture of a human brain. And so as you did the slider, it became more and more brain like. And as you did the slider, the other way became more and more walnut-like. Similar thing with like a baby carrot and a human finger. So as you move the slider, it gets more and more finger-like. As you move the slider, it gets more and more carrot-like, right? And I think his study basically showed that like the hungrier you are, the closer you'll eat the object to brain or finger than to carrot or walnut. So like he, uh, he said like at what point on this like trajectory from walnut to brain would be like the 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 bare minimum requirement for you to eat this, you know, from brain to walnut. Um, yeah. So people made that conversion faster when they were hungrier. I love that these studies are being paid for. It's amazing. <laughs> I think he did a study just for the conference. He's, he's really good. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very creative. I liked it. So in terms of, you know, when we look at the impact of sex on our culture, you know, you often, you know, sex influences, songs, movies, all sorts of things in the cultural sphere. But um, does it also have an impact on innovation and scientific discovery? You know, is there some sort of uh, impact of status seeking, for example? Oh, yeah, I do think so. And, and I was I was making fun uh, on Twitter. This is like a few weeks ago. But, um, you know, that that given that one of the major perks of status in all non-human animals is that you get greater sexual access it's funny to me that people are so surprised when high status people try and get greater sexual access as a perk of their high status. You're like, that's 
why would people even strive for status? Like, like you know, it you know, it's possible and like it's entirely possible, right? For like people to a specific person to want to strive for status and have no sexual interest at all, be completely monogamous with whoever they are, or like even be asexual. I actually think asexuals are probably some of the most productive people in society because like you know they're they're not chasing tail like they <laughs> they have a lot more time and energy to like focus on something that might not be as inspired. Um, to get certain things done, to actualize certain specific mating strategies. But in terms of, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just an evolutionary psychologist. And, and basically, I think that the main reason that people strive for status, um, that men strive for status or have a, a inclination and an instinct to strive for status is for greater sexual opportunities. I don't think that women necessarily strive for status for the same reasons. Um, women do strive for status, but I think that they strive for status for more social reasons. So what do you think the impact long term will be of, so for example, the Me Too movement? You know, is this is this placing uh, additional costs on uh, males' reproductive strategy? And will that have some sort of, you know, long term influence on the way that men and women approach reproducing? My version, my, my view on Me Too is that when we think about the harm that is caused when somebody comes on to someone and it's unwanted or somebody even touches somebody and it's unwanted, right now we are calibrated to see that harm as the greatest possible harm it could cause. So the harm to the most possible sensitive person. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily good. I also think that there are uh, there's there's no like balance that people are considering between the good that somebody causes in society and the mm, harm that they caused like any particular uh, person by you know unwanted uh, like an unwanted come on of of, of any kind. Um, and you do obviously see the rules applied very very inconsistently. So right now um, in the United States, there's this big controversy over this guy called Cuomo, the governor, the governor of New York. I don't even keep up with politics. And um, he, you know, around the time of coronavirus, there's good evidence that he took elderly people who had coronavirus, he put them in nursing homes, and he almost certainly has, has you know, the deaths of, I don't know how many elderly people on his hands because of the way that he mishandled uh, uh, these elderly uh, patients with COVID. Okay, people didn't like that. He tried to cover it up. They thought that that was bad. But what's actually sinking him is that like 12 women have come forward and said that he like groped them or that he came onto them or that he touched them in an unwanted way. I think that Me Too has, I mean, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense to say that somebody has caused greater harm touching 12 women in an unwanted way than by killing old people. <laughs> in my view, you could group, you could grab a hundred women's asses <laughs> and it wouldn't be as bad as killing one old person. <laughs> but you know, that's just like my, you know, my calculus morally, like about how these kinds of things work. So I do think that Me Too um, has gone really far in that a lot of people were, uh, were kicked out of various offices or couldn't get movie deals or whatever because of a single um, allegation. Um, 
Yeah, and you know, I think in, a, in many of these cases, either the story was exaggerated or the person wasn't actually very specifically harmed by it. Um, but this is the kind of reckoning that we're going to have to see um, in society. And uh, I, did a, I did a really long interview um, with Robert Wright, who wrote The Moral Animal on this. Um, he was very much of the opinion that, like, you know, Me Too is good. Um, and I was of the opinion that Me Too is mixed. It's not being consistently applied. Um, it's not morally coherent or consistent, and that the real purpose of Me Too is to get women in more positions of power. So, like any allegation against any man was at that time, you know, in, in the heyday of Me Too, taken seriously, um, men were ousted, and women almost always took these men's uh, positions. Um, and I think that if you see the outcome as the motivation, then that's what I think was the motivation um, was to improve the representation of women in positions of power. I don't think it was necessarily about um, protecting women because in, in many of these contexts, uh, it was unclear, you know, if any harm was actually caused. Mm -hmm. I, I suppose uh, if that is the case, if, if men strive for positions of power so that they can get access to women and mm -hmm. they're now barred from doing that, then maybe in the long term, that may have the desired effect um, if that is what people wanted in the first place. I mean, but yeah, my, my very unpopular view is that um, a lot of people who strive for status, who achieve positions of power because of unconscious or conscious sexual motivations, they were doing, um, you know, they were good at their jobs. And if we asked everybody who has a sexual motivation or who tries to come on to people on the basis of their high status, then we will lose people who are highly driven and highly competent. Um, and I think that the cost of that is greater um, than the cost of um, some people being, you know, it really also depends on, you know, on the harm. I remember um, there's a public radio personality in the United States called Garrison Keillor, um, and he was like the voice of my childhood. Like I heard him all the time and he was ousted on the basis of one complaint from an anonymous woman who he claims he had a totally consensual affair with, but it was because he was working for like the public radio and uh, they were not going to ignore anything that he, that he did or said. Um, so I think in that particular case, like he brought pleasure and joy to like millions of people. Um, I just don't think that there's any, um, consideration of the cost benefit as I think there should be in every context. Mm. Well, I suppose, well, on the other hand, if someone has legitimately caused harm to people who are underneath them, I mean, that's in whatever context, that's not good. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. And that's, that's, an, uh, that's a bad work environment and it can cause, you know, it, it does mean that the person who is high status is not going to be able to accomplish their goals. They're not going to be able to help people out. They're not going to be able to to actualize um, their agenda that that people necessarily want. If people under them feel unsafe, um, but I think that there was actually you know around the time Me Too had its heyday, there was a This American Life uh, about a specific man, and the This American Life was called Five Women, and it was about this guy who was a big deal at some company. Now I can't remember the name of it. And um, he had a wife and he had four women working under him and he um, sexually harassed them all to some degree. 
so it shows they're very, very varied responses to that. So one woman was like, look, you know, I applied for this job. I knew that I actually didn't have the qualifications. I just applied for it on a whim. I could tell this guy fancied me. And so I ended up getting the job, even though I didn't really have qualifications. I was grateful for that. So like he showed me a couple, couple pictures of his penis, you know, not a big deal. He showed them to him on his, on his he was like sitting next to her and he showed them to her on his phone. Like she wasn't traumatized for that. And like on balance, she's like, okay, I'd rather have this job and see a couple pictures of this guy's penis than not have this job. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think I'm, I'm glad that they, that they did that because these, 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 these contexts are nuanced and there are women who know exactly what they're doing and what they're getting into. Women are not babes in the woods that we, you know, a lot of women are using these, these sexual contexts to their advantage. I guess society needs to calibrate, right? There's a lot of new technology that's coming in, for example, that's, you know, we didn't, we weren't able to show people pictures of penises on phones <laughs> 20, 20 years ago. And I suppose as, as our society shifts and sort of accommodates new technologies, new developments, we're going to be sort of swinging back and forth uh, on the appropriate way to deal with office relationships, let's say, mm. or power plays from whichever sex. But, um, what about other Im impacts? So in terms of talking about um, technology on uh, sexual dynamics, what, what's the impact that, you know, for example, what was the impact of the pill when that came on? So what, what impact did that have on uh, sexual power dynamics between men and women? I think that men and women still have a lot of the same instincts. So, you know, for example, uh, a woman could be on contraception and have sex with someone outside of her relationship and a man will be just as jealous and just as aggressive and angry um, as if she was not on any contraceptives because there's a very deep history of cuckoldry where men don't want to be cuckold. They don't want, they don't want to be taking care of offspring that aren't their own. And so, you know, in, in a lot of ways it hasn't changed things. Um, similarly, if a woman is having sex with a man, on a regular basis, she is looking for cues that he's committed, invested in her in case they have children together. Because, you know, it'd be really important that she didn't get pregnant without any care or security. If she's on the pill, it shouldn't actually matter. Or if she's postmenopausal, it shouldn't really matter. But there's actually not that much we can do about these enduring um, psychological responses to um, romantic relationships. I mean, you can make conscious and more more rational decisions. It's much easier to choose to be child free at this point in history than at any previous point in history. Um, it you know the, it used to be that whether you wanted children or not, if you ever liked to have sex, even a little bit, you were going to have children <laughs> inevitably, right? <laughs> um, it didn't really matter much what you what you thought specifically about the outcome. Um, but I don't really know how much the power dynamics have, have actually changed. Um, it seems like, you know, women have more ability to plan their reproductive uh, life and therefore they can gain greater independence and greater financial um, freedom, which you know, gives them a certain amount of security without men. Um, college educated women, I think, initiate like 90% of divorces. And I think that wouldn't be possible. Uh, without contraception. I guess when men were earning the money and women were at home, they didn't really have the option to divorce, right? I mean, they would have ended up with nothing. 
yeah, I mean, there's there's a you know there's a social safety net and there's welfare and stuff like that. But no, it um, they would have you know had a very big change in, in lifestyle if um, they had had left their husbands. Um, I haven't read this paper yet, but uh, there's a paper out by a few of my evolutionary psych colleagues, uh, Marty Hazelton, Christina Durante, Sarah Hill, about the evolutionary psychology of women initiating divorces. And I cannot wait to read it. So I, I just had to look at it today. What about, yeah. um, what about, so uh, moving forward a little bit. So, um, so porn and eventually sex robots, I suppose, which are going to yeah. be coming on online anytime soon in, in, I guess that we already have sex robots. Um, what impact are these going to have on, on sexual dynamics? I wrote, a, I wrote a whole thing about sex robots, and I haven't really paid much attention to sex robots since then. I, I think it's going to be a while before they're very um, highly perfected. But in, in the piece that I wrote, um, which is called Uncanny Vulvas, you can see it on my... Um, have you read it? Yeah, I have, yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, yeah, it, 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 I basically make the case that... Um, it's going to change men and women's psychology in a way that's quite similar to what you would see as um, um, sex ratios. So the fewer women there are, you know, on college campuses, for example, um, when there's a minority of women, you see that women have greater power because there's fewer women to choose from. Men cannot switch as quite as easily. And so, for example, uh, in a minority female campus, you see that um, fewer couples are having sex. Um, it's like women are calling the shots, basically, because um, the switching costs for men uh, are either high or they, they have got nobody to switch to. Um, in terms of sex robots, yeah, I basically just said it was going to be a major um, driver of innovation and that we should expect them. I also said that um, unmated men, that is men who have no partners and have no ability to get partners, um, are very dangerous and that it was going to help societies that men had some outlet, you know, some, some environmental cue that said they are doing well and that they don't need to do anything risky, dangerous, or aggressive in order to get mates. In other words, they're getting sex. And so their body tells them not to, the body doesn't realize it's with a robot. Well, if the robot's convincing enough, yeah. So it's like a, it's a cue. I mean, you know, you can imagine like if you can, become aroused looking at, you know, back in the 1950s, men were masturbating to uh, literal black and white postcards of naked women. Um, oftentimes these women were like, you know, not the kinds of looking women that they knew in real life. Because these women were like women who got paid uh, to, to get naked. So they weren't necessarily like the most beautiful, <laughs> most high class women there were, right? They were like just whoever was willing to get naked and have pictures taken of themselves. Um, so if you can get an erection and, um, and have an orgasm to a picture like that, and now there's like full color porn, et cetera, et cetera, you know, robots are going to be really emulating that um, to a really great extent. And there's some evidence that access to pornography decreases the rate of sexual assault in societies. Um, there's, uh, I think that the evidence is pretty good for that. And I think that would have quite a similar effect, yeah. So what's the difference between, I mean, we've had vibrators forever, right? So what's the difference between, you know, sex robots and vibrators? Why, why will they have a bigger impact? Well, so vibrators are made mostly for women. And uh, when women have sex with people, 
they're not primarily looking for a um, sexual experience or a sexual outlet. They are looking for a variety of other contextual factors. I mean, that's one reason why women um, take so much longer to assess a mate and why they take a lot longer to figure out, you know, if they want to have sex with somebody or not um, compared to men. So for women, vibrators don't fundamentally change the sexual dynamic because they are not replacing the majority of things that women are looking for. Um, mm. So this has to do with like the huge asymmetry. So for men, um, any sexual opportunity is a good opportunity. And men's, you know, you see this in like in non-human animals as well. So like the, uh, in males of all different non-human animals, their um, rate of responding to any facsimile of anything that looks remotely female is much higher than females of that same species. So male sea otters will mate with baby seals. Um, a turkey or a pheasant will actually do a um, mating dance for a red ball suspended from the ceiling <laughs> or a disembodied head of a female. They'll do a mating dance for that. Uh, for a bull, if you want to get a semen out of a bull, um, I think you just need a, a, a big condom and like a, a wooden stand with four legs on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and for men, you know, you've seen like normal, whatever, sex dolls, uh, the, the blow-up dolls they sell in shops or whatever, which like look nothing really like um, human It's kind women. of embarrassing, isn't it? That <laughs> males of yeah. all species are... <laughs> and, 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 and human men are much more likely to have sex with animals than, than human women are. Um, much, much more likely. Uh, and Kinsey found this out. I mean, Kinsey's got some faults with his data. So for men, you know, a missed sexual opportunity uh, is, is a much greater missed opportunity than for, for a woman because, as I said, you know, if, you, if you're buying babies for a dollar, you want to have as many babies as you can, whereas for women, they, they're, like, they're much, more, much more costly. And so um, vibrators don't fundamentally change. Um, you know, you could say that, like, the welfare state fundamentally changes the dynamics between men and women because it means the government is providing something for women that previously was only provided for by men. So many sex robots are like the welfare state. That's a point I've never made before. So that's good. <laughs> Wait, so, so the sex robots for men are like the welfare state <laughs> for women. Well, I'm just saying that like the welfare state replaces something that previously was only available through a partnership with a man, which is um, security yeah. housing. I mean, things that were only available through partnership with a man for the last few hundred years, you know, cause like, obviously um, if you live in some groups in, in out in the world, you don't need a man at all. You can like you and your mom can, you know, build a hut together and, and forage for food. And like, you don't, you don't need men uh, around you depending on where you live. Um, but yeah, for the past few hundred years, the only way to get security and safety and food was for a woman was through partnership with a man. Yeah. I wonder, so it sounds like, um, you know, when the robots finally take over, it might not be through violence. It might just be that they sexually outcompete all the women. <laughs> <laughs> we have a, an army of perfect robot women. Um, I think that, yeah, I, yeah, I basically thought that a lot of the outcomes would be, um, you know, pretty good. Um, you know, and, and you do see, like, I wonder sometimes video games are incredibly compelling and I wonder if there were men who would be just amazingly competent at problem solving in day-to-day -day life, but they're so compelled by the 
bite-sized and perfectly flowy, like you know, video games get you in a perfect flow state. Those kinds of problems that are available, as opposed to going out in the world and tackling like more difficult problems. And you can imagine something similar happening with like sex robots. If I say, like I said earlier, that a lot of men are trying to achieve status for sexual reasons, you might also expect that sex robots would also degrade men's um, pursuit of status for sexual reasons. So what about other, so I guess, um, you know, at the moment, all reproduction involves two people, but in the future, maybe we'll have artificial wombs, maybe two women will be able to have children together. What sort of impact do you think those sorts of technologies will have on sexual relations and relations in general? I think that even though there's a lot of possibilities already. I think that you can make babies with three people. I think that's a new thing that you can do. I mean, it's not, it's not like, there's not like a, it's not like 30%, 30%, 30% or whatever, 33%. Um, what they did was they had two people and then one person had a genetic problem. So they just like took a bit of genotype from somebody else and like stuck it in. I don't remember how they did that exactly. It wasn't CRISPR, I don't think. Um, you know, I just think that as much as you might think that these things are going to fundamentally change sexual dynamics, you know, we have certain evolved sexual dynamics. And so people can choose to do something different. You know, you could choose uh, if you are uh, attracted to women or you are in a partnership with a woman. I do think it's going to be wonderful when two women or two men can have babies that are genetically theirs. Because right now, I don't know what these conversations are like because I'm not in a same-sex relationship. Um, and I only know a few people who are in same-sex relationships who have children. But it's a difficult conversation to have to say, okay, who's going to be related to the kid and, and who's not? Um, and sometimes you get around that by, you know, so I think I know a lesbian couple where one woman had a baby with the sperm of the brother of her partner. Mm -hmm. So at least one of them would be raising her niece or nephew and not completely like um, unrelated. So I think that's great because I, I do think that people take better care of children that are genetically related to them on average. Uh, you know, obviously there are people who adopt and they take wonderful care of, of children um, and adopted children are certainly getting better care than they would in a kind of foster care system with somebody who's committed to taking care of them for life and to adopting them completely. Um, but there's a reason why uh, people choose to use donor gametes like donor eggs and donor sperm above and beyond adopting not just because adopting is very difficult and you know the the standards for choosing adoptive parents are really high um, much higher than the standards for using reproductive technology i wonder is it the case so men will more or less can never know a hundred percent that the child is theirs whereas women always mm -hmm. know is it the case that men are generally sort of more the same with adoptive children, whereas women see a decrease in, uh, you know, caring or when it comes to adoptive children? That's a, I, I have wondered this myself and I don't, I, I don't know of any data on this in particular, um, you know, for men. So I'm going to kind of pivot and then I'll get back to this. So Deb Lieberman, who is a discussed researcher, did a few really great studies. And she was interested in um, incest avoidance and incest aversion. So how do you know that somebody is your sibling and that you should avoid having sex with them? Well, there's some cues that are associated with that. How long did you live together as children? That's one cue. And did you see this person nursing at your mother's breast? That's another cue. So if somebody's, if somebody's younger than you, 
if you see that person nursing at the mother's breast, it's an indicator they're related to you for sure. If you live together a long time as children, that's another indicator. And so I think when people use a donor egg, they like using a donor egg because they get all the cues that that child's genetically related to them. Even if they consciously know that that, that child is not, all the cues are there, like all the hormonal and physiological cues are there. And also a man will get cues that the baby belongs to him and probably be more invested if he sees that baby coming out of the woman he has sex with from the day um, it is born, right? So I think that um, that's one reason why older children are less desirable is not just because you're getting fewer cues that they're related to you, so it's, it's harder to hack, but also because um, you know, those, those children often have other problems, which is why nobody's adopted them. Um, so there's both selection effects and also kind of an evolved psychological um, aspect uh, to it. Do you think, um, you know, with new technology coming online, do you think over time the difference, you know, obviously this won't happen in one or two generations, but when when people can use artificial wombs, when when we can use technology to have, you know, children with between two women or between two men, um, when the selection pressure that's on men and women uh, sexually is sort of homogenized, are we going to get into a situation where men and women become more and more similar over time? I don't really think, I mean, it's unclear how things are going to go in terms of like a transhumanist trajectory. I do think artificial wombs would be great. They would free women up a lot. Um, I mean, right now it's partly because of the kind of nurture assumption we have in society. Pregnant women are held accountable for so much. You know, there's these ideas that like, you know, you take a Valium or you drink a cup of coffee and you're going to screw your, you know, your fetus up forever. Um, I think there's a tremendous um, pressure on pregnant women, which could be alleviated um, necessarily with artificial wombs. But, you know, we were just talking about how you could become less attached to a child that you don't give birth to yourself. And there were some studies done like in the 1960s where I think it was a actual randomized trial where they either separated women from their newborns for three hours or they gave them to them right away. And allegedly, I mean, this is what the data says, that women treated their babies different just from that three or four hour separation for the rest of their lives, that they were less attached to children who they had been separated from in those kind of, in that kind of sensitive period. And so I think that if we were to use something like artificial wombs, that we would also have to figure out some way of manifesting the same attachment um, cascade, you know, physiological cascade. Um, I don't know, maybe give somebody a mega dose of, of oxytocin and MDMA. I don't know exactly <laughs> what you would do, but um, you know, you would have to be able to um, do some facsimile of that kind of sensitive period. Um, you know, you're right that like, I don't actually know how men become attached to infants. Uh, it must have something to do with seeing, I don't think it means seeing a woman give birth because men, I think by and large across societies don't see women give birth because it's something that like, it's a place that men don't really belong. <laughs> you know, like you, you know, you had something to do with this, but this is not your place right this moment. But I think, yes, yeah, seeing, a, seeing the woman you're having sex with nurse a baby is probably the, the major, uh, the major cue there. Um, it's interesting also, uh, that women who are pregnant are often major, um, victims of domestic violence. And I think that also has to do with uh, kind of cuckoldry um, fear. 
So, you know, if you were on the rocks and they were, you know, you were taking a break or you were having sex with other people um, for a period of time around the time the woman conceived, I could see how um, that would precipitate a aggressive relationship between the man and the woman uh, because um, he would, you know, he's got some doubts that, that, that she's carrying his child. This is not in any way to legitimize, um, you know, domestic violence. I'm just saying that these are contexts that could precipitate greater abuse. This, this study where they separated babies from mothers for three hours and then found that throughout their entire life, you know, they treated, the, they had some different uh, behaviors towards that. How do they test mm -hmm. that? Like how, <laughs> it seems like such a- I think it was just like a questionnaire. This is 60s or okay. 70s. It like wasn't very- You could never do this again. It wasn't again. very sophisticated. <laughs> I don't think you could do it again. I mean, you could get, you could almost certainly have like a natural experiment. Um, I don't know if people, I think so, there are people who do research on like, um, how women who have C-sections feel differently. But I mean, again, if you have a C-section or you're induced, um, you have a lot of the same kinds of things that are happening, um, you know, or like based on whether or not you, you breastfeed. I don't know if the bonding would be different, but I also think women differ a lot in their, you know, I, I know a woman who said, I want to have a completely natural birth. Um, I want to be unmedicated entirely because I've always been ambivalent about having children and I want to make sure like really all the cues possible are in place, uh, you know, that, that are natural, even though, you know, the excruciating pain of labor, I want to make sure that's all in place so that I bond with my baby adequately because I'm, I'm not a very naturally maternal person. Whereas I think that there are there's such big individual differences. I think that there are probably some women where you could be like, here's a three month old baby and they could treat that baby better and take better care of it and be more attached to it than a woman who gives birth you know, herself. So it really depends on your, I think you'd, you'd have to do a study with like identical twins because I think maternal instinct, um, there's, there's always gonna be some inherent like variability. Mm -hmm. it, you know, what is this, knowing the differences between men and women in terms of their psychology, temperament, behavior, what can that be used for? I mean, so for example, so I, I'm a physicist or mathematician and uh, often people talk about representation uh, in STEM fields of women, for example. Do you think there's anything that you could use this knowledge for in terms of, uh, you know, if you wanted to change uh, the levels of representation, for example? Like, do you think... Um, do you think, for instance, that um, positive discrimination in terms of giving, you know, jobs to certain groups that are underrepresented is a good way to go? Or is there some different way that you would approach these sorts of questions? There's a really good study. It's had, I think, four cohorts. It's called the study of mathematically precocious youth. And what they did is they took hundreds of students who scored, I want to say, in the top 10th of one percentile on the math and analytical segment of the SAT from, I want to say, the 60s to the 90s. And then they followed these people uh, for generations or, you know, decades and saw what happened with them. Um, and they, you know, they tried to figure out what these men and women um, would end up doing. And they saw that these women who, um, you know, had this like one in a thousand score on the math portion of the SAT were uh, more likely to go into STEM. But the men in that same cohort, men who scored, you know, in the top 10, 10% 10, 10 of 1% um, on math, 
uh, also doubled their representation in STEM relative to men who scored um, more averagely on those uh, on that. So they were like, okay, why are why are these women not necessarily going into STEM? Well, women who are very mathematically gifted um, tend to also be gifted in other uh, domains. They also tend to also be like verbally gifted and socially gifted. There's an idea that like men who are mathematically gifted, there's more of like a trade-off. So there are like a lot more men. There's like, I think like four times as many men who are exceptionally mathematically gifted compared to women, but those men are more likely to have social uh, or verbal deficits or what's called math. Have you ever heard of math tilt versus yeah. verbal tilt? Yeah. So like I'm super verbal tilt um, and you know, I'm better at math than the average woman, but like I'm not, or I'm, I'm just barely better than math of the average man. Um, so these women seem to have to make less difficult choices. For the men who were in the study of mathematically precocious youth, their main gift was math. Mm -hmm. For the women in the study of mathematically precocious youth, anyway, so they follow these women for decades and they also ask them, you know, what are the most important things in terms of your life? And for women compared to men, so it's interesting because what they've done in this particular study is they've controlled the cognitive gifts of these people, mm -hmm. right? If you just like look at the average man and the average woman, um, but these are people who are very mathematically gifted, who could work in STEM, who could make a lot of money in a variety of different industries. And what they found in these studies is that these women said that um, working uh, close to their children, taking care of their families, having hobbies, having close friends, um, taking good care of their health and the health of their family was way more important than the men in these particular studies did. And the men in these particular studies said that they were much more interested in making money and gaining status in their field um, than the women were. And these are men and women who have similar you know, cognitive uh, gifts. The other thing is that they asked these men and women, um, if you could work uh, at your ideal job, how many hours of work would you work at, at your ideal job? 30% um, of men in this study said that they would work 40 hours a week or more at their ideal job. 7% of women in this study said that they would work 40 hours a week or more at their ideal job. So this particular study, which is um, in Charles Murray's Human Diversity, which a bunch of people have talked about when they talk about these sex differences, as evidence that even if you look at very mathematically gifted women, they're just not as interested in work on average. I'm not saying that like any individual woman necessarily against any individual man. But on average, you're gonna see these, these kinds of differences. And you can have as many you know female role models in these industries as you want. You can show young girls uh, a lot of engineers and things. It's just gonna be people like to do what they're good at. And um, even if a woman is exceptionally mathematically gifted, um, she might enjoy more doing something that's uh, got more of a social or verbal component to it. And, you know, everybody knows about the Google memo, James Damore Google memo. James Damore has a bunch of different things that he suggests at the end of his memo as ways to encourage women to be more likely to be uh, programmers. For example, he says that, you know, we can make it more social. He says that women are more, um, what does he say, more generous or more kind or more altruistic than men are? That's not true. <laughs> that's one of the things in that, in that memo that's actually not true. He actually makes a lot of, he says nice things about women that aren't necessarily true. But, um, you know, he, he tries to say, what are these different ways that we can entice women into this field? I know these are things that you could definitely try, but I think that equal representation isn't important. And I don't know why we would try to, why don't, why don't we just have people doing the things that they're most interested in? 
you know, like um, my friend who is a Russian Jew, his father went to a Siberian university in Russia because that was the only university that Jews were allowed to study physics was in Siberia. And like, yeah, that's, that's terrible discrimination. But his dad really, really wanted to study physics because he moved to Siberia for it, right? <laughs> and so I think that when you when you get involved in equal representation, one trade-off that nobody ever really wants to talk about is when you when you really push equal representation, you're gonna necessarily gonna get people who are like more ambivalent about being involved in your field at all, who don't stay there or who decide to do something else. So what do you think we should be aiming for? Like if if you were in charge of uh, university admissions, would you just completely scrub uh, diversity quotas, diversity, well, what, what would your approach be? I mean, uh, at the University of Portsmouth, where I worked for um, like eight years, uh, we had numbers on student records and when students did examinations, um, I didn't know who they were, I didn't know their names, I didn't know their sex, and I didn't know their race. And we were, uh, we were grading students on that basis. And in the UK, we call students who are minorities BAME. That's Black Asian Minority. Mm-hmm. Can't remember what the end of that means. Um, and those students were still doing worse, even with totally anonymized um, exams. Um, I can't remember if we had them had different entrance criteria for minority students or not. Um, but they were trying to figure out a way to fix this lower grades of BAME students. Um, while also keeping this anonymous, mm-hmm. uh, this this anonymized exams, and I think that like anonymized exams is like the best you can possibly do, and I don't and, and anonymized applications is the best that you can possibly do. Um, I have a friend who is really into diversity and equity and inclusion. She wrote um, you know something really good about it. She wanted me to look it over because she knows that I'm uh, contrary to her you know ideologically on this. And, and in her piece, she wrote that there's a variety of different ways that you can tell whether or not someone is male or female, majority ethnicity versus minority ethnicity, based on the way they write or how they format things or whatever. And that these like subtle clues, you know, really make things like not exactly anonymous. And so that you have to compensate for these things, like not exactly affirmative action, but anyway, I, I just disagree with all this. I think that you should anonymize everything and then, um, you know, I just think that if if I really want to do something with my life, but like the fact that I haven't seen another woman do it is like a major obstacle for me. I think that it, I'm probably not as interested in that thing. I'm not as quite, quite as internally motivated as um, as somebody who would be willing to do it regardless of, of what they saw. I, there's a whole conversation about role models um, and a bunch of bad research about it. Uh, there was some <laughs> terrible study. There was just a terrible study where they were like, oh, girls who watched the X-Files, who saw, what, what was Gillian Anderson's character, Mulder? Was she Mulder or was she Scully? I never, <laughs> wait. Anyway. Yeah. I, I never watched this. I think she's Mulder. I'm not sure. So girl, girls who watched X-Files were much more likely to be interested in STEM. They're like, oh, this is great. Because what they're showing is that this is like, you know, it's because they saw this female role model. No, girls who watched the X-Files were nerds. And of course, they were more interested in STEM overall <laughs> than like girls who didn't watch the X-Files. It wasn't because they saw a female role model. It was because they were watching X-Files because they were nerds to begin with. It was because of their original individual difference, not because of how X-Files culturally changed them. So uh, that's my view. But um, 
people are going to keep striving for equal representation. And, you know, you're going to get women and you're going to get people who, you know, of various kinds um, to necessarily, you know, decide that they're going to major in a certain field, they're going to go to a certain university, and then they're going to be less committed because um, they were given these kinds of external incentives mm-hmm. um, compared to to people who I think are more intrinsically or innate, innately kind of interested in these things. I find it quite interesting where attention is placed though. I mean, universities in general have more women going to them uh, in the student cohort. And then there are certain, there's lots of other subjects that are female dominant where you don't hear about this as being a problem. It's very interesting in my mind that uh, STEM is uh, singled out. But something you said made me interested. You know, I, there's a piece of software, I don't know what it's called, that you can, that's used to, you can determine what percentage of a, of a paper someone has authored. You know, it's mm-hmm. some artificial intelligence that looks at all the things yeah. they've written and it says oh, they, they were responsible for 20% of that. I suppose you could train that sort of software to scrape through all the applications, work out which anonymized ones are from, you know, students of whatever category you're interested in. I mean, the technology is there if you really want to go through and anonymize things and still, um, you know, skew. Still discriminate. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it seems... It seems difficult to do. Um, one one funny thing is that um, psychology is dominated by female grad students, although the representation of faculty tends to be more 50-50. And then evolutionary psychology tends to be 50-50. Um, so they call that like a leaky pipeline. They say that women are likely to, to, to get out. But if you look at the study of mathematically precocious youth, you'll see that like for women, uh, working at a job that has these incredibly distal rewards, like the reward of get being a full professor, is just not as like enticing to them. That's not something that they're as motivated towards. And so that's not necessarily a, a leaky pipeline um, so much as it is like the same incentive structure that's necessarily going to be likely to get you the best people is also one in which, um, you know, women are may not be as necessarily interested in, in competing. Um, I can't remember the other point I was gonna make. <laughs> I suppose academia in general has this problem where, you know, universities produce the product that they then use. So there's like this weird supply demand uh, um, thing that's going on, you know, so they, they produce the PhDs and then they also employ the PhDs. And so they like to produce a lot of PhDs because it creates competition that's in their favor. So it's not yeah, that there's it's... a lot of people who drop out of programs too. Uh, but yeah, the, the joke was that somebody said, oh, why don't we do affirmative action for, uh, for male graduate students because they're the minority, which yes. is funny. Nobody, nobody was interested in doing that. No, I don't think that, <laughs> yeah. But um, I, I suppose also with STEM, if you include medicine and all these things, then it sort of, it evens out somewhat. It's only if you look at... Yeah, 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 absolutely. If you include medicine. I mean, there's even interesting differences in like specialties of medicine um, between men uh, and women. Um, women are more likely to end up in, you know, pediatrics. Men are more likely to end up in surgery. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think... Um, so it, So let, let me... We should probably wrap this up at some point. So mm-hmm. let me ask you just one or two quick other questions. Can you, um, so in terms of personality, so if, could you give a questionnaire to, to a bunch of people and then determine, you know, that such and such a person is female to 70% accuracy or, yeah. so that, that's doable, is it? 
Yeah, yeah. There's even a study that um, my one of my colleagues did where he just asked people, um, yeah, various questions about their mate preferences. Like, you know, do you want somebody older or younger, whatever? Yeah, but you can tell with um, so that this paper actually, if you go to my if you go to my website, if you look up um, science of sex differences syllabus, it's on Dianiverse. You can see a bunch of different studies and articles that I have uh, put up there where you can see, um, you know, I think the sex difference in terms of personality, I think you can tell with personality questionnaires if somebody is male or female with 96% accuracy. But is that including questions like, is your preference, is your sexual preference for women or for men? I mean... <laughs> no, that's excluding that. That's, okay, ex sorry, no, that's, that's excluding that. And I also think that like, if you excluded gay men and gay women, you get a greater accuracy because these people, gay men and gay women, and bisexual women too, tend to be um, less gender typical. And I suppose transgender and intersex and so on. Like yeah, just... this is, this is, there's, I've got this, this, um, yeah, this is like, gonna, I think, I think going to be a problem. The more gender fluid people become, I think actually this might be the, the like actual desired outcome of this kind of gender fluidity thing is people, um, uh, really muddying <laughs> any research on sex differences. Uh, because you know, somebody's like, I'm a woman and I was, you know, as a very aggressive child, you're like, oh, okay. And then, you know, little boys are not necessarily more aggressive than little girls. Like people are not necessarily reporting their, their sex assigned at, at birth. Um, and I don't necessarily, you know, some trans people are more similar to the opposite sex. Uh, and some, some are not, uh, depends on, it, it's good. It's actually going to depend on, um, yeah, but as I said, the, the, t the taxonomy is fraught. But do you think there's actually a directed goal behind, you know, the increase in, you know, people are interested at the moment, like right now today, the issue that's on the cards is uh, transgender rights, right? That's what people are interested in uh, currently. Do you think, do you, do you believe there's some <laughs> bigger uh, push? Uh, you know, is, 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 is it really a directed goal? Um, yeah, you make I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't think that's a conspiracy or a directed goal, but I think that like, for, okay, two things. I think that some people choose an identity based on their ideology. So I think that there are many people who think that sex differences research is fascistic or oppressive or biologically determinist, and they choose to identify as gender non-conforming or non-binary in the service of that goal. Similarly, there are people who are Marxists or communists of various kinds who identify as polyamorous because they think that owning or like, you know, being, being possessive about any particular person in a romantic relationship is wrong from a Marxist perspective, right? It's, it's, it's like, it's like capitalism in romance, right? And so for that reason, they choose to have a different personal identity. So I think that there is ideologically driven uh, ways that people uh, change their identities, you know, to try and disprove uh, a cultural narrative that they disagree with ideologically. I, I guess the reason why I ask is because previously when we spoke about um, uh, Me Too, for example, you could imagine that there's some directed uh, pressure that's aiming to um, reduce the incentives for, for men to seek powerful positions. 
um, as an effort to, um, you know, level the number of women and men who are CEOs or in government or whatever. But it's likely not the case that, I mean, it's, it's, it's likely that it's just individuals that are um, particularly interested in, in this particular issue, right? That there's probably no directed thought down the line. Um, I don't, I don't think necessarily, yeah, that there's a concerted effort. I think that like my hunch, right. Is if you were collect information about uh, Me Too, who's likely to get ousted in terms of Me Too? It would have something to do with the politics of the person who's going to get ousted. So I think that, like, you know, Joe Biden got in a lot less trouble for for whatever allegations were against him than than Trump got in trouble for whatever the grabber by the pussy quote. Even though that actually wasn't a woman in particular complaining, it was just him speaking crassly off the cuff. Um. Uh, I think that if you were to look at like individual cases of men who got ousted, it probably would be predictive if there was a woman interested in taking that particular person's position. Mm-hmm. I think that would be as predictive as, or even more predictive potentially, than the harm that they caused an individual woman or a group of women. This I, I don't I, I don't have a clean way of wrapping up this conversation. This conversation has been interesting and, and bouncing <laughs> all over the place. Everything from like cannibalism to Me Too to like yeah, all kinds of craziness. Usually yeah. I have a bow, but it seems like uh, <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to be able to pull out a bow on this one. But uh, in any case, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's thank been you. it's been really good. Escaped Sapiens.